Well, good morning, and many of you may wonder, who is this guy up here preaching today? Well, I know a lot of you, but I don't know everyone. My name is Bill Bider. There's a little bit about me in the bulletin today. My family and I joined Lion and the Lamb about almost two years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but May 2010, we joined Lion and the Lamb, and there's a little bit of history about me in there. I have had a lot of experience teaching Sunday school, Juana's and making other kind of speeches in front of groups, but I have never preached the message to an entire church. So when Mike and Kent approached me and asked, was I ready to teach, I really was hesitant to want to do that, just because I'd never done it before. But they convinced me that I probably was ready to try this, so here I am today, and so to try to keep me on track, I, and I like this anyway, I've, I've got some overheads, bringing a little technology to the message today, and hopefully that will help me not only stay on track, but emphasize some points as well. So uh, bear with me, as, uh, and hopefully this will go well. I prayed a lot as I prepared. I had a lot of people pray with me as I prepared today. And uh, I'm going to pray one more time because I need some help. So bow with me in prayer. Lord, please guide my words today. Help me to teach your truth clearly and accurately. Help me, Lord, today to hit on some points that we all need to hear. And pray, Lord, that you would just open your word in a new way to each one of us, that your word would powerfully change us today. And so, Lord, I just thank you for the preparation. I thank you for the support and encouragement that I've received from the leadership guys here at Lion and Lamb. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, hopefully this will technologically work for me, too. Many of you probably already saw what I was going to talk about today, this question of what I must do to be saved. And my guess is all of you have heard one or more messages or read articles on this very subject. You may say, I already know the answer to that, that I already know the scriptures. I can point right to them. And you would say, probably accurately, a lot of those scriptures do, in fact, answer this question in one way or another. But today we're going to delve into this in a way maybe that's a little different than you've ever heard before, because uh, we're going to end up talking about the stories of a couple people coming to salvation. And I hope today, too, that when we really get into this, that you end up examining yourself some to determine for sure that you are in a right condition with the Lord. And even if you are, maybe what we talk about today will help you to share this um, subject with others as you present the gospel and witness to them. You will see maybe how some of these truths fit into that role that you have as a Christian. So, I'm going to start out, really, with a few statistics. And probably a lot of you have heard of this group, the Barna Group. They are uh, out of California. I thought they were older than this, but they were formed in 1984 by George Barna and his wife. And so uh, the main thing that they do, this Barna group, using their own words, 
is that it's an organization that surveys the public, mostly Americans, I believe, and what they try to do is focus on the intersection of faith and culture. So if you've ever looked at their surveys, you'll see they they have a variety of things. But I've got three stats that I'm going to start with today that I think are really relevant to this subject because it gives you an idea of where Americans are. So that's what we're going to look at, just three statistics that I think are very revealing. The Barna survey result, first one that we're going to look at, this is Americans. 84% consider them to be Christians. Well, that's a really high percentage. I think everybody would agree. If we really had 84% Christians in the U.S., we might have a little bit different culture that we live in. And when we look at what Jesus said, a relevant verse to this very question, at least as it relates to the United States, Jesus said, small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, 84% seems like more than a few. And so Jesus somehow seems to be implying in this verse, if it applies to us today, which it probably does, that there is something elusive about that finding that saving faith, that belief. Perhaps it's just the simplicity of the gospel, which may be a stumbling block to some. And perhaps the truth is just being choked out to some as to what it means to be saved But it doesn't seem to fit. The 84% and few does not seem to fit very well. So there's probably a fairly high probability that of those 84%, some are not on that narrow road. They haven't entered through the narrow gate, but instead they're on the wide road that leads to destruction. Now let's look at two other stats that help us understand this a little bit better. Only one-third of self-proclaimed Christians, now this is the 84%, believe that faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. Well, what does that mean? That's a pretty amazing statistic, I think. That means two-thirds think that salvation can come apart from Jesus. That may mean that uh, the, the push for tolerance in our culture has caused many who consider themselves to be Christians, to think there are many paths to salvation. Perhaps we all are worshiping the same God, but maybe calling him by a different name. Maybe that's what's going on here. We have this verse, and there's others, but Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, and that's referring back to Jesus. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We all remember John uh, 14, 6, 2, which is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But yet, only one-third of the self-proclaimed Christians who answered this survey question thought that it was necessary to believe in Jesus to be saved, that there were other pathways. If that's true, Jesus could, didn't really have to go to the cross. Why would he have to if there's another path? Finally, one other statistic. 83% of Protestants believe our salvation is at least partly due to works. Another amazing statistic. So that would be, uh, well, first, Catholics, that goes up to 91%, believe that works contribute to our salvation. 
lot of those people who would answer that way either don't understand or don't agree with this verse. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That seems pretty clear that works are not contributing to our salvation. And yet, 83% of Protestants somehow believe works plays a role in our salvation. Perhaps what they're doing is they're remembering what they may have been taught about James chapter 2, where faith without works is dead. They may be not understanding that it isn't works that lead to faith, but it is faith that leads to works. It's also... It's just amazing that we can have Christians reading verses like this and be so confused on this issue. But I think when we just look at these few stats in total, what we really end up with is a pretty clear understanding that there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be Christians, but if they believe these two things in combination with that belief in themselves and what they are, you have to believe then that there's a high probability that uh, they may not be on that narrow road. Okay, so back to our question. What must I do to be saved? There's a lot of verses that we can turn to, and we can get sidetracked and go down bunny trails and everything else. But I pick three verses out that I think really answer this question most clearly and and with consistency. These three verses, uh, two out of John, one out of Acts, I'll read through each, all of them. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Very tr- truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, this is a pretty clear teaching on what it takes to be saved. I don't think we have to look at a lot of those other verses. These three are clear as can be. I must believe, but what does it mean to believe? That's the million-dollar question. What does it really take to have that kind of saving faith? Is it just intellectual consent? Is it like just knowing Jesus was a historical figure, like George Washington or Alexander the Great or something like that? Or is it something more than that? Is it more than just acknowledging that Jesus was a real person who taught good things a couple thousand years ago? We're going to get into what it means to really believe in Jesus because I think that is the key that I'm trying to address today. And I'm going to start by, and it looks like that's off a little bit. Hopefully I won't have many glitches. We're going to start by talking about two stories of salvation. Charles Spurgeon, and my own. And um, probably nobody in this room has probably ever heard much about my story of salvation. Um, But I'm going to hit on that too. Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He actually, he was born in 1834. And uh, that seems like a long time ago, and we wonder why do we care about him. Well, Most people acknowledge him as one of the best preachers of all time. He could dig into spiritual truths like no one else that I have ever read. He could expound on a single verse in a sermon in a way 
that was just really teach very well a very profound truth. And I really have learned a lot from reading Charles Spurgeon. You may not agree every single thing that he teaches, but yet he, he is a great preacher overall. He was born outside of London, as I said, in 1835, and grew up in a very religious home and had a lot of religious heritage in his family. Uh, one other thing about him, just to give you an idea of how much preaching he did, he has a sermon library that fills 63 volumes, 3,561 sermons. He preached from his late teens to age 57 only when he died, which averages about two sermons per week during that whole time period, as well as all kind of books, and uh, many of you may have seen his devotional books, which are very good, and just a lot of other writing that he has done. So this man is, uh, is someone who has taught not only through his sermons, but now it lives on through his writings. Again, back to his heritage. He was a man who grew up in this Christian home, and he was strongly influenced by Pilgrim's Progress. And I would guess that many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, either the old, old version of it, uh, in, which is hard to understand, or more modern writings uh, where it have been written more in the English that we can understand. And then there's a kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress. But he not only read that multiple times as a kid, it strongly influenced him, and he really had a good background in Christian theology. He knew that Jesus died for his sins. He knew it, but it had not become personal in his life for a long time. Not until we'll get to that a little bit later. But he carried a burden of sin and guilt. He, he didn't feel peace. That peace eluded him that comes with that saving relationship. Even though he seemed to know the facts about Christianity. He'd been taught them. He felt very much like the main character of Pilgrim's Progress, the man named Christian, who went on the pilgrimage. The man who carried a burden, as he's carrying on this picture that you see up here. He carried that burden until, and we'll come to that, a certain point in his life. Christian in the book, Charles in real life. So he knew his Bible, but peace eluded him. His soul was certainly not at peace, and now he had reached age 15. And when he was at age 15, struggling with this burden, unlike probably very many others where he lived way back in England or any of you young folks who are near 15, he was searching for an answer to that question. And that question was, how can I be saved? This is a quote from him where he made a commitment to visit every church within 50 miles of his home until some preacher would give him the answer. So this is the quote. Surely some good preacher will tell me how to be saved. Even though you would have thought he knew how because he had the scriptures in his mind. But yet peace eluded him. Now, what happened? He was visiting these churches every week probably on his own, to the best of my knowledge, from reading his biographies. And his mother had told him about a primitive Methodist church that was near his home. 
He hadn't visited yet, and he hesitated to go there because the reputation of a primitive Methodist church was that they blasted your ears out really bad with the singing and the preaching. And somehow he just wanted to stay away. That did not sound like where he wanted to go or the reputation of that church. But on a very cold, snowy, blustery, north wind day where he lived about 40 miles from London, he said, I'm going to go to try this church because it isn't as far away as some of the others that I'm walking to. He's walking to these churches to go visit. So he leaves his home, and he's happy to come to this church not too far away, and he slips into this primitive Methodist chapel, and he slips into a pew in the back of the church. There's only about 15 people there. In walks someone who he had to believe could not be the regular preacher in this church. Tall, lanky-looking man. And all he thought to himself, what an uncouth, stupid-looking man that's going to be preaching to me today. I'm not going to learn anything from this man. I don't, I'm not even sure why I'm here. Okay, we're going to stop that story right where that is. And just keep it in mind, we're going to come back to it. Now we're going to shift to me, because we're going to have the beginnings of each of us. I was like the opposite. I grew up in a family where... We had a Bible. We attended the Episcopal Church. Our Bible sat on my parents' dresser. And you know what? That Bible was never opened except for one reason, to slip in it cards, pictures, obituaries when a family member or perhaps a friend died. I don't remember us ever reading anything out of that Bible. I don't remember us praying a single time in my home. But we went to church just about every week. We were socially active. I was an altar boy. Anybody ever been an altar boy? Um, There are only altar boys in certain churches, I guess. But I was one. But I, I didn't have a clue about what it meant to be saved. I was lost, totally. But instead, what I was was very successful as a kid. I did good in school, got good good grades, I was good in sports. I grew up, believe it or not, in a small town in southern New Jersey, not too far from Atlantic City. And um, so I was an ocean kid, I really was. And part of that success that I had as a kid got me some rewards. I was the quarterback of our football team, a school of 2,000. Pretty big deal. I played on a state championship basketball team. I wasn't the star or anything, but I was on it. Got to play and experienced all that. I had lots of success. I got an appointment to West Point and to the Coast Guard Academy. I chose the Coast Guard Academy, which I went to in New London, Connecticut, for a while, but I didn't stay. That's another story, which someday maybe I'll share. But uh, I left Coast Guard Academy, went to Bethany College, who had been recruiting me to play sports out here in Kansas because I dropped out of the Coast Guard Academy. Everything else had disappeared, but yet I still had a scholarship waiting for me out here at Bethany. So success just came my way. I was a rich boy in a way that wasn't money because my dad just worked for the post office. We didn't have a lot of money, but yet everything else came to me very easily. And I think that that continued into my early adulthood where everything was just too easy. 
And when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, it applied to me. Even though I didn't have a lot of money in a bank account, or neither did my family, things were just too easy for me. And I didn't need God. I really don't think that I felt I needed him in my life. Everything was going just fine without having any kind of need or relationship with him. Even though I would have probably answered I was a Christian because I went to the Episcopal Church for my whole upbringing. Well, this spiritual condition that I had of pride and richness and self-sufficiency really shows up in a comment I made when I was out at Bethany College. There was, uh, I had a lot of friends who I really believe were Christians. Somehow I uh, got around them and hung around them even to a large extent. But one time I remember what something I said to some girl out at Bethany that was just so wrong, and yet she didn't challenge me. I just made the comment somehow when the concept of salvation and our eternal destiny came into the conversation, I said, you know, that God is going to look at the good and the bad that I did in my life, and he's going to see the good outweighs the bad, and I'm going to end up being okay for eternity. How could he punish me? I'm a pretty good guy overall. I don't hurt people. I don't do this or that that is bad. So God's going to look at me, and I'm going to come out okay. And note, she didn't challenge me. She let me go on with this self-confidence, this lack of fear in God. And I just went on that way with that same belief of my self-sufficiency, that somehow my works were earning me something. I was one of that group, too, on the statistics we looked at. Somehow I thought I was just in pretty good shape and so happily on my way, not knowing that I was really on the road to hell. Well, you know, we started out with Spurgeon already being burdened. I wasn't burdened for a long time, but it finally came. That success isn't going to last forever, and I think everybody knows that. I had been on a up for a long time in my life. I hadn't had a down. And finally, I, God got my attention in two main ways. First, the thing that it shows up there, he brought a Christian wife into my life. And again, that's another story for another time because I really can't go into that. But a lot of you know my wife, Robin, and... She was a Christian, and I wasn't. And all I'll say for now is, we were unequally yoked for a while. And I won't go into that, but I believe that God brought her into my life because I needed her quiet influence. But other things happened. We were married now. We got married, been married a couple years. I'm now getting to my upper 20s. And still dead in my sins on that road, that wide road leading to destruction. But Robin, let's say God knew how Robin needed to influence my life. I don't even think she knew how she was influencing my life, but she was. But other things started happening. Even though I had a good job, and was making pretty decent income, the stresses were growing significantly. I worked for a small engineering consulting firm, 
And things were expected of me that I really did not like doing. And so I didn't like those work stresses that were just building and building and building on top of me. And I think that had something to do with some chronic health issues. I've been a pretty healthy person, too, my whole life. But I was experiencing some strange health issues, which I won't go into those details either right now. But yet, in combination, God was getting my attention. This self-sufficiency and pride that I had was just beginning to crumble away. I was realizing not only from Robin's influence and a little bit of attendance at church that I really couldn't do it all on my own. That hard, prideful heart of mine was cracking. And there's something else. A lot of you probably have experienced the time when a preacher or even reading the Bible in your quiet time, a single verse just jumps out at you, and it really hits you and means a lot to you. Well, this happened to me, and I don't think Robin even knows this, but there was a time we attended church together, and we were sporadically attending different churches in the Kansas City area. There was a message that was preached Um, from Isaiah 64, 6. And actually, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, okay? I haven't been even looking at my notes, so sorry about that. But I'm going to come back to what happened when a certain message was preached. But at this point, let's just say that I am beginning to be burdened by the cares of the world. I am not finding all truth yet, but the crack is there in my heart and I am starting to look. Just like Spurgeon was searching for an answer to that question, what must I do to be saved? At least now I'm looking outside of myself. I'm not just looking at my own strength. So we're coming from totally different points of view, but the Father is drawing both of us to him. Charles Spurgeon had been burdened with this feeling of guilt for a long time. Me... The burden had been pretty recent, but it was strong. And I'm finally searching. I'm finally hearing the Father's voice and listening. And I'm ready to do something different. But the bottom line is, still at this point in time, we're both still dead in our sins. We have not yet made it to the cross. Now, I'm going to go back to the primitive Methodist chapel where Charles is waiting to hear what is going to happen. So what happens? The preacher, and a lot of preachers do this in those older days especially, and Spurgeon himself did it. There would be one verse, and they'd preach the whole day on that verse. They might pull in other relevant scriptures. But here's the verse that this old, stupid, uncouth preacher, who couldn't even pronounce his words correctly, according to Charles, preached on. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That's the King James. That's what they used back then in in, uh, the churches, most churches around there. And so what I'd like to do, because there's no way that I can explain it right, Charles Spurgeon recorded a little bit of what this preacher said, and I think it's just really good and interesting. This followed a couple of those loud hymns where Charles was just ready to have his ears blasted, and he did have them blasted. 
Here's some of what that man said. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And then the text says, look unto me. I, many of you, are looking to yourselves. But it ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. O poor sinner, look unto me. That's what Charles heard that morning. That's expounding on one verse. And then he looked at Charles in the back, a guy that he probably wasn't used to seeing in his small congregation. And he said to him, you look miserable, young man. And he was for a variety of reasons. And then he said, look, 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 yelling louder and louder unto Jesus, directly at Charles. And Charles just trembled. And something changed in him. Something happened. He saw Jesus as never before. He saw him on the cross dying for his sin. He saw what his sins required of someone to die on the cross as Jesus did, for the sinless, innocent man to die. He'd never seen it like that before. He saw the most perfect sacrifice ever. And he knew that God found that sacrifice acceptable. And when he saw that and understood it, he loved God in a way that he'd never loved him for what he had given him, for the precious gift that he had received. And that love then translated even into thankfulness and repentance and wanting to obey. When you love and are thankful and see it, you want to obey and follow. He believed, finally, in the way that he needed to believe to be saved. He had that relationship and that his sins were forgiven. The burden slipped away. And that's exactly what happened when Pilgrim approached the cross in Pilgrim's Progress, or when the Pilgrim Christian approached the cross in Pilgrim's Progress. That's quite a dramatic story of conversion. A person who knew the Bible, who knew the story who knew everything that Jesus had done, but yet had never made it personal. But yet, right there that day, he did. And that change occurred in him. I'm going to switch to my own story now, which is nowhere near as dramatic as that. It was much more gradual, although there was a moment in time when it occurred, because that's what salvation is. It's a moment in time. My story really takes me back to... um, that time again when I was struggling, when I was experiencing these trials in life, dissatisfaction with where I had found my, my search. And, and let me just mention something about that. My di- idea of spiritual things was so warped before this time, I had some strange blend of what I had learned in my Episcopal church upbringings and science and science fiction and mysticism and I don't know what. 
but it was some really weird blend of stuff, and so I had a warped perspective. But it did come down to a works perspective as well. And again, a lot of that stuff went with this pride I had of being a smart kid. I read, my son Lucas thinks that I am crazy because I still read books like this, but I'd read books about quantum physics and relativity and stuff like that, and somehow I thought that has something to do with my salvation and spiritual life. But I'm past that a little bit now. I'm struggling. I'm having the influence of a Christian wife. I'm going to church a little bit. Now I'm going to come back to this Isaiah 64 message, one of those ones that just hit me like a brick. And what it was, was it's one of those ones that I'm saying that I bet every one of you have had a time when a verse just really hits you. It meant more to you that time you heard it than it ever did in the past, or maybe you had never heard that verse. But the one I'm talking about is it's the sto- story, 64.6 is where Isaiah talks about filthy rags and how our good works are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. And why that hit me like it did, I don't know, but it did. Because I had been depending on my works, but it showed me that my works were filthy rags before God, and they weren't going to earn me anything. So what, where, where does that put me? It puts me looking for what is truly the answer to where my salvation can lie. Well, one morning during all this time where God is working on me through Robin, through some of these messages, through stresses and trials, And one morning I went to work. I used to go in earlier than anybody. I'd get to my little office, and one morning I was at the end of, I guess, where I needed to be. And I fell on my knees in work, nobody else really there. And for some reason, I saw Jesus, as Charles Spurgeon did, on the cross. I looked at him. I never heard of Charles Spurgeon in those days, so it's not like I could say, oh, I'm just remembering the Charles Spurgeon story. That's not what it was. I I knew nothing about him, never heard of him for years to come. But I saw Jesus, too, as my Savior that day, and I trusted in him. As in John 6, the living bread discourse, I ate that living bread. I believed in a way that was eating the bread. And I was rescued from the dominion of darkness on that very morning. I went home that night and told Robin what had happened to me in work that day, although I can't even, she reminded me that I told her that. I hardly remembered it myself, but I did go home that night and share what had happened. And my sins were forgiven, and I was thankful. And I really had experienced something very similar to Charles Spurgeon did, but I had started in such a different place. But again, I met Jesus at the cross. When these happened to both of us, 180 years apart is about what it was. We both became new creations. The same changes that occurred in both of us occurred in every one of you when you believed in that way that brought you salvation. And here I've got a list of things that are those changes that occur in every believer. And these are maybe not every single one of them, but these are many of the important changes that occur in a believer. We're born again of the Spirit, as Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
We're baptized, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're immersed. We're sealed for the day of redemption, and that seal guarantees our inheritance. We're justified by the blood of Christ. We're covered. We become righteous because of that covering in the eyes of God. We become part of the body of Christ, each with our own role and responsibility in the body. We become citizens of heaven and ambassadors of Christ. We pass from death to life and entered the promised rest. We no longer have to work for our salvation. We know that our salvation has nothing to do with our works, but comes only because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And we obtained everlasting life, eternal life, never to be lost. Everlasting life means forever. While we may fall and sin, and if we claim to be without sin, we're a liar. We're still going to sin, even though we're, we're saved. We're still going to sin, but we cannot fall overboard. We can fall only on board. We cannot be lost. The security of the believer is so important for every one of us to remember. It's a lie to say that you could lose salvation if you have truly believed. A couple of verses that emphasize this. John 6.39 says that Jesus will lose none that the Father has given him. Remember, the Father draws us to Jesus. He draws us to the cross. And when he does and we come to the cross, we cannot be lost. And no one can snatch Jesus' sheep out of his hands. And again, in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Once we enter into that relationship, it is forever. Cannot be lost. Well, today may be a day that you're really being drawn to the cross by the Father. Maybe you have been drawn in the past, and you just need to reaffirm where you have come from and where you are now. But if you are one of those people who do not believe that you have ever seen Jesus in this way, dying on the cross for you, having to pay the price for you, which you could never pay, and you've never seen him this way. Maybe you've been one of those people who knew about Jesus. Maybe you knew that he taught a lot of very good things. You knew he really existed, just like George Washington. No doubt in your mind about any of that. But maybe you've never seen him dying for you. And maybe you've never in response, loved him for what he has done for you, and maybe you've never been thankful for what he has done for you. If that's true, don't harden your heart today. Today may be the day that you need to make that decision. I know that knowledge of Jesus is not the same as a saving relationship with him. What we've got here is a stanza from a hymn titled At the Cross, and we're going to sing this. But I thought that this refrain, this is the refrain from uh, Isaac Watts wrote the original uh, hymn 
1707. That's one of those really old ones. And this refrain was not written for a long time later by Ralph Hudson. But this refrain says exactly what I've been trying to say today. And I think that uh, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then I think Bill's going to lead us in this hymn right away before we enter into the normal time of worship. But at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Lord, thank you for this, uh, these truths that we looked at today in your word. And thank you for graciously giving us a way to escape that road of destruction, that road leading to hell. Thank you that you have made a narrow way of escape. Thank you that you have died on the cross and that you are showing us that that is the way of escape to believe what you have done, to truly rely on you, depend on you, and not on our own works, to not believe that there's another way of salvation other than you, Jesus, but only you. And help us, Lord, to just, if we have not already done this, to put our full trust and reliance in you as our Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.